Creative Babble. One of the best parts about being a dad is being able to mess with your kids. On the way to school one day, I told my seven-year-old daughter that I bet she could read my mind. All right, so I'm thinking about a movie that I know. That we both know. A movie that we both know. I guessed Snow White, and I purposely got it wrong. So we tried again. Oh, okay. All right, well, I'm thinking of a, I'm thinking of a color. What color? Oh my God! How'd you know that? Is that real? No, for real. Really? Yeah. Really? Yeah, that's the color I was thinking about. Don't pull my leg. If you pull my leg, that means that you're pulling my leg. All right, I won't pull your leg. Did you? No. I was totally pulling her leg. Being a psychic is actually not as easy as it looks. I have to be honest. I have very little patience for psychics and pretty much anyone claiming to have supernatural powers. I think they're silly. How could anyone take mind readers or mediums seriously? I just assumed that everyone knew psychics were phonies. Everyone knows they're full of it, right? Right? But then I learned of the story I'm about to tell you, and honestly, it made me question everything. During the 1970s, the CIA funded a study on psychokinesis. Psychokinesis is the ability for someone to move objects with their minds. Why in the world would the CIA, arguably the world's most elite spy agency, want to study psychics? Maybe they wanted to disable guns before the enemy pulls a trigger, or possibly disable radars or take down spy satellites. Who the heck knows? But studies like this really happened. Oh, and they were also interested in remote viewing. For those of you who are rusty on your psychic terminology, remote viewing is someone who has the ability to see images from a distance. For example, let's say you're listening at home. Look at an object in your room. If I had this extrasensory ability, I would be able to see the same image in my mind. You're probably rolling your eyes thinking, how could anyone believe this? But apparently, according to a bunch of declassified documents, the US government really believed that this was possible. We have to remember that this was the 1970s we're talking about. In the next hour, I'm going to open my mind, and I hope you do too, to the possibility that psychic secret agents were real and how they played a role in one of the most bizarre chapters in American history. I'm Javier Leva and this is Pretend. Stories about people pretending to be someone else.
Picture this, a foggy evening, the whisper of secrets in the air, and an invitation to step back into the glamorous and mysterious 1920s. That's the backdrop of June's Journey, the game that's been keeping me glued to my phone lately. Instead of doom scrolling on social media, I am actually playing the part of June Parker, a daring detective with a personal mission to solve her sister's murder. And let me tell you, it is a roller coaster of emotions and puzzles. What's to love? Well, first of all, the thrill of hunting for hidden objects. I'm a sucker for these kinds of games. It's kind of like those books that we grew up with, but with a storyline that keeps thickening. Plus, the game takes place in New York to Paris, uncovering clues of scandalous family secrets that make you feel like a real detective. If you're ready for a dose of mystery, romance, and the glamour of the 1920s, June's Journey is waiting for you. Download it for free on iOS and Android, and let's see who cracks the case first. So, when did you learn that you were maybe a little different than the other kids? Well, when I just attended school, I demonstrated certain abilities that were different and others could not do it. The voice you're hearing is that of Uri Geller. He's the self-proclaimed mystifier. And sorry about the poor sound quality, I had a lot of trouble recording this one. I called Uri Geller at his home in Israel. Uri was telling me about a story when he was five years old. He says he was eating soup during dinner when something really strange happened. And as I lifted the spoon towards my mouth, it's just bent, broke, and I guess I realized that I had something strange uh, or, or bizarre. So at any point did you try to keep it a secret? Because, I mean, I can't imagine that if I found out that I had these secret powers that I would want anyone to know. I mean, did you try to hide it at first? No, no, on the contrary, I was a show off. Uh, I, I, you know, I wanted to, to be talked about. I wanted to amaze kids. Uri says that he grabbed another spoon and showed his mother. He says she couldn't believe it. I mean, can you imagine a young Uri Geller sitting down at the dinner table and discovering his newfound abilities to bend metal? He says he couldn't wait to show off this new trick at school. The next day, he showed his school friends and his teachers, and they were pretty much astonished. They kind of freaked out. So already then, I realized that some kids believed, some didn't. But what I did realize is that I was interesting to others. I was freaky. I was unusual. I was bizarre. I was weird. His whole life, Uri says he had other strange abilities like moving the hands of a clock, reading people's thoughts, but it's his ability to bend metal that put him on the map. I have to admit, talking with Uri Geller was pretty hard to do. He spun up so many stories so fast that my right eyebrow was permanently perked up during our entire conversation. 
my um, let's call it repertoire my my abilities are very limited and very narrow it's basically metal bending telepathy dousing um, being able to deflect a, a needle of a compass and sprouting seeds with the power of my mind. That's basically it. I mean, this guy has one shtick, and he's been doing it for 50 years, bending spoons. It sounds like a bunch of bull, but it was like one fantastical story after another, like this one. Because my mother is related to Sigmund Freud, by the way, Xavier, if you didn't know, my full name is Uri Geller Freud. My mother comes from Vienna and she comes from Sigmund Freud's family. So it's easy to write off Uri as a fantastical storyteller. After all, who could actually take this guy seriously? But very important people did take him very seriously. Specifically, people in the US government. But, I mean, do you think that maybe this is genetic? That maybe these powers were passed down to you? Or that maybe your kids have these abilities? My children can't do it. My daughter, Natalie, who lives in L.A., she, you know, when they were doing, growing up, they tried. My son lives in London. He's a senior prosecutor. And he can't do it. So I guess maybe it's something that is, I don't know, maybe it was, it, I was awakened by a, either a supernatural force, either a genetic um, engineering energy, or something made it um, suddenly awake, awake in my brain, it awoke something that I could demonstrate these abilities. So when, when you're bending a spoon, because, you know, I've never seen this in person, but when you're bending a spoon, what is physically happening to the spoon? Is it like heating up? I basically hold a spoon or a fork or a key. I rub it ever so gently and I don't even visualize it bending. I command it to bend in my mind. I just talk to the metal in, in my mind and the metal starts bending. That's it, period. There, there's no heat produced. Uri Geller grew up alone without brothers or sisters. When he was 12 years old, his parents divorced. It was during this time that his mother revealed the secret she's been keeping from him his whole life. She says he was actually her ninth child. I found out that my, I was my, my mother's ninth child uh, and I'm an only child because my father simply didn't want children and he forced my mother to go through eight abortions. Yet, somehow, Uri was allowed to live. After the divorce, Uri and his mother moved to Cyprus. Uh, so she divorced my dad and took me to Cyprus where she married a Hungarian Jew who lived in Nicosia. Uri's stepfather owned a small bed and breakfast in Cyprus. But it wasn't an ordinary bed and breakfast. It was a hotel for spies. And the Mossad, the Israeli Mossad, 
found out that we were Israelis. So they turned this little hotel into a Israeli Mossad safe house. The Mossad. Is Israel's intelligence agency like CIA or MI6? Uh, Israeli spies would uh, live there for a few days, some lived there for weeks, and they would venture out to spy for the Mossad in Arabic countries, in Syria, in Egypt, in Jordan, and so on. One day, Uri walks up to one of the Israeli spies. Call, call it intuitively or call it, call it telepathically, but I knew he was a spy. And I told him, let me show you what I can do. And I bent a, a, a key for him. That freaked him out. And uh, he said to me, look, Uri, I'm off now, but I will be sending you letters from Arabic countries. When I go back to Israel, he said, go to the paratroopers, volunteer um, to the paratroopers, go to officer school, and then find you, and then I will get you into the Mossad. From that day forward, young Uri begins to fantasize about becoming a spy, going behind enemy lines with his mind, disarming weapons by changing the shape of the barrel. What an incredible advantage. No other army in history has ever had a weapon like Uri in their arsenal. And here was this fantasy of mine uh, coming true. I'm going to be a spy. I will work for the Mossad. Now, when I went back to Israel, I did exactly what he said. I joined the paratroopers. I went, went to officer school. Uri moved back to Israel, becoming a paratrooper, jumping out of planes for the Israeli army. And later, he became an officer. But real war wasn't as glamorous as Uri imagined. The next series of events has to be taken with a grain of salt. After all, talking with Uri is so fantastical, it's hard to tell what's real and what's a good story. But let's just go with it. Soon after Uri became an officer, Israel preemptively attacked Egypt, Syria, and Jordan. It was a bloody battle, now known as the Six-Day War. Uri was on the ground when he noticed a Jordanian soldier pointing a gun behind him. Uri only had seconds to react. He had no choice. Uri Geller squeezes the trigger of his Uzi and kills the soldier. Later that day, Uri says he was shot in the arm and was taken to a hospital in Jerusalem. It sounds crazy, but Uri was in the Israeli military. Just ask his friend, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Well, we were both very, very young. And he did these amazing things. And I remember it made a tremendous impression on me when I was a young soldier. And that's how we first met. And then we met again and again and again. And each time, I was amazed more. I'm still amazed. I haven't the faintest idea how he does these things. Word of Uri's ability spread throughout Israel. And that's when his life took a turn. Uh, I was introduced to the chief of the Mossad. I was uh, introduced to Golda Meir, the president of the prime minister of Israel. Golda Meir was Israel's first and only woman elected as prime minister. When asked on national radio what she predicted the future of Israel to be, she replied, Don't ask me, ask Uri Geller. Up to this point, Uri was just a soldier who could perform impressive parlor tricks. But Uri told me that the Israeli spy agency, the Mossad, had bigger plans for him. 
And then I started working for the Mossad, who didn't understand how I did what I did. And they were the ones who called the CIA. And I guess they were the ones who talked to Kit Green in Langley, Virginia. And they said to him, listen, we, we got this guy. We just don't know how he, he bends spoons, how he reads minds, and how he does these amazing things for us. Will you study him? And that's how, Xavier, I got out of Israel. This is former CIA officer, Dr. Kit Green. One afternoon, I got a telephone call on my desk in the headquarters building. And the, the phone call initially was on what we call the red line. It was a classified line. That soundbite came from the BBC documentary, The Secret Life of Uri Geller. Okay, first of all, when I was tested uh, for telepathy at Stanford Research Institute for the CIA, I was locked in shielded rooms and drawings were done in other rooms away from me. Some drawings were done very far. One of them was uh, uh, Keith Green, who was uh, CIA operative in Langley, Virginia. Remember, this was before FaceTime or Skype. Uh, so he tested me from Langley, Virginia, and he held a book in his hand. I didn't know what he was holding, and he asked me to describe what he was looking at. And I just described scrambled eggs, but then the word uh, architectural was coming in very strongly. But the thing that caught my attention was he had written across the top of his drawing the word architecture. I had written in my handwriting, the word architecture. And so so you, there's no way a magician can cheat his way through uh, controlled conditions, especially if the tests are done from far away. You see, at first, the CIA was interested in testing Uri Geller's electromagnetic abilities. But then, the study shifted and focused on Uri's other skills, like being able to see images from across space and time. Dr. Green authorized the funding for the research to study remote viewing. What did you suspect at the time that they wanted to do with your abilities? They wanted to see if my mind can trigger a nuclear bomb. Could you, like, trigger a nuclear bomb with your mind? Um, I, I, I don't want to go there. This might all sound crazy, but you have to take into account what was going on at the time. It was the height of the Cold War, and it was believed that the Soviet Union was spending 60 million rubles annually on parapsychology research. Here's Uri Geller talking about the project. What I've learned from the documents that the CIA released is that they believed, and this is, I mean, go to my website and read the CIA stuff. What the CIA believed and the scientists there believe is that if they had seven or eight Uri Gellers, they could probably dematerialize an entire city. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm urging you to read this because this is actually in the documentation of the CIA. I did a little digging and I couldn't find it. 
Geller was taken to Stanford Research Institute in California between August 4th and August 11th, 1973, and placed in an opaque, acoustically and electrically shielded room with two locked doors. Uh, but when I met the scientists who were waiting for me in San Francisco airport, um, I discovered two nice, uh, very kind people. And um, yeah, they drove me to Stanford Research Institute, which is today Stanford University. And for a few days, Uri Geller went through a battery of tests under controlled conditions. In Stanford Research Institute, when the CIA tested me, they actually weighed a small one gram weight. They put it on an electronic scale and I managed to somehow levitate that off the scale. Well, it didn't exactly levitate. The researchers were able to measure the metal and the metal in many cases lost weight. I am Bonner Cox, executive director of the Information Science and Engineering Division at Stanford Research Institute. You're listening to a film produced by the Stanford Research Institute study. I feel compelled to remind you that this study was funded by the CIA. The fricking CIA. Stanford Research Institute has been conducting an experimental program in the field of psychoenergetic effects. We do not seek only to add to a catalog of interesting events. Rather, the purpose is to apply objective scientific analysis in the study of these reported phenomena to determine whether a pattern of cause and effect relationships can be established of the type more familiar in the physical sciences. This film describes a five-week investigation conducted at Stanford Research Institute with Uri Geller, a young Israeli. The film portrays experiments that we performed with him just as they were carried out. In the video, which I will link to in my show notes, Uri Geller is sitting on a sofa with two other men. He's holding a clipboard. Here we show a series of experiments where previously 15 drawings were placed in double sealed envelopes in a safe. The inner envelope is opaque in its own right. The outer one is a heavy manila envelope. A floodlight behind these envelopes would not permit the interior to be seen. One of the researchers went outside the room, looked at the drawing, resealed the envelope, then Uri Geller was to draw the same exact image on a sheet of paper. This is Geller's representation of what he believed was sealed in the envelope. Remember, Geller should have never had access to this drawing. These drawings could be anything. It could be a drawing of sheep, a number, or maybe even something abstract. But the point is, there's no way Uri Geller can replicate this drawing. The footage shows Uri flipping his clipboard. He drew a circle inside of a triangle, and that triangle inside of a square. The researcher pulls the paper out of the envelope and places the drawing next to Uri Geller's drawing. In fact, this is the most off-target of the drawings that he did. The researcher's drawing had the number 8 inside the triangle, and the triangle was inside the square. It wasn't exactly the same image, but it was pretty darn close. The only difference was that there was a circle instead of the number 8. Here, the experiment is repeated. So they did this again, but this time they bring out a different researcher. 
The man sits next to Uri Geller, holding an envelope with a drawing. Uri closes his eyes and bobs his head as he's sifting through the hundreds of images in his mind. The researcher doesn't blink. He's staring at Geller and watching his every move. Uri picks up a pen and begins to draw. He flips over the clipboard and reveals his drawing. This is the drawing that Geller has made to correspond to the target object. The rectangle on the clipboard represents the TV screen in Geller's mind on which he claims to project the image he is trying to draw. Inside the rectangle, Geller drew a wide oval with a little triangle on top of it. The researcher pulls out the drawing from the sealed envelope and reveals a picture of a flying saucer. It was a disc-shaped UFO, just like Geller's drawing except with more details like windows. In the video, there's no audio, just the narration. But if you could only see what I'm saying right now, Uri Geller grabs the researcher's shoulder and shakes him back and forth. I mean, he's ecstatic. As you can see, he is quite elated about getting the right answer. Before he does this, it is usually preceded by several minutes of, I can't do this, it's impossible, I want to stop, let's wait. Uri Geller throws himself back and puts his hands over his face. He just can't believe that he got it right. Then the film cuts back to a close-up of the drawing pad. There are three sets of drawings. An airplane, a happy face, and a car. For example, on the left column, there's a picture of a plane. That's the controlled drawing from the sealed envelope. In the right column, it's Uri Geller's drawing. It's a very similar plane, except it's pointing in the opposite direction. This is not a collection of correct answers out of a long series of correct and incorrect responses. This is actually the total run of pictures in a series. It is interesting that there is often a mirror symmetry. In other words, Uri Geller got it right most of the time, but all his images were flipped. Almost as if when the image travels through the air and into Geller's mind, he sees everything in reverse. He got it right every time. Well, almost every time. This type of communication experiment was repeated many other times during the five weeks, with Geller choosing to pass about 20% of the time. They also conducted a double-blind experiment in which neither Geller nor the participant know what's going on in order to reduce bias. In this experiment, there's a box with 12 metal cans. In this particular case, the target is a three-quarter inch steel ball which already resides in one of the 10 cans in the box. Uri can't touch the cans. He could only point. The 10 cans, having been arranged neatly, Geller's task now is to determine which of these 10 cans holds the steel ball bearing? He waves his hands over the cans and asks the researchers to remove one can at a time. Here he writes the selected number. This, you might say, is a kind of 10-can Russian roulette. He has made his choice. The steel ball is found. The video goes on to say that Geller would sometimes walk into a room, point at the correct can, and get it right on the first try. We have no hypothesis at this point as to whether this is a heightened sensitivity of some normal sense or whether it is some paranormal sense. Paranormal? I mean, have these guys ever been to a magic show? 
I mean, I've seen better tricks at a kid's birthday party. Then I have to remind myself that this is a classified CIA government experiment run by scientists. And just like the scientific method requires, the researchers repeated a variation of the same experiment over and over again. Sometimes Uri would pass, but then he would make a guess, and he got it right 100% of the time. What are the odds of that? The whole array of this run had an a priori probability of one part in 10 to the 12th or statistics of a trillion to one. He had a trillion to one chance of getting it right. Over the years, the Stanford Research Institute Remote Viewing Project added up to $20 million. After Uri Geller's tests at the Stanford Research Institute were complete, that's when his full-time spy gig began. Here's just a few of the things that Uri says he can talk about. One of the tasks that I was given by my handler in Mexico City was to spy on the Russian embassy. They wanted me to erase floppy disks of KGB agents that were flying out to Moscow. And I, I could easily erase floppy disks with the power of my mind. He says that psychic spies could use their powers to see the invisible. Today, satellites can see through clouds, but there is still lots of information that you cannot, uh, cannot be delivered by uh, high technology and by spies on, on land. So they use remote viewers to you know, detect uh, submarine movements with nuclear weapons on, etc., etc., etc. Even former U.S. President Jimmy Carter can vouch for this. Here's a quote from an interview with GQ magazine. The former president said, and I quote, Well, in a way, I became more aware of what our intelligence services were doing. There was only one instance that I'll talk about now. We had a plane go down in the Central African Republic, a twin-engine plane, a small plane, and we couldn't find it. And so, we oriented satellites that were going around the Earth every 90 minutes to fly over that spot, where we thought it might be, and take photographs, and we couldn't find it. So the director of the CIA came and told me that he had contacted a woman in California that claimed to have supernatural capabilities, and she went into a trance, and she wrote down latitudes and longitudes, and we sent our satellite over that latitude and longitude, and there was a plane. That was President Jimmy Carter talking to GQ magazine. The U.S. government's interest in psychic warfare didn't stop with the Stanford Research Institute project. It continued to evolve under various different codenames. There was Project Center Lane, Project Sunstreak, and many others. But the one you're probably most familiar with is the Stargate project. The Stargate project was declassified in 1995. The secret U.S. Army project was featured in the book and film titled The Men Who Stare at Goats. In the book, based on the actual military experiments, Special Forces soldiers reportedly stopped the heart of goats by simply staring at them. Imagine, if you can stop the heart of a goat with your mind, the enemy could never stand a chance. Here's Uri Geller talking about a similar project from the BBC documentary, The Secret Life of Uri Geller. They took me to a laboratory and 
you know that I became a vegetarian many, many years ago, and I love animals. And in this laboratory, which was a white room with no windows, maybe there was a chair and a table, stood a pig, a big pig. And the scientist looks at me and says, Okay, Ori, we're going to go out for lunch. Stay here with a pig and stop his heart. Wow, when I, 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 I just could not believe what I was hearing. Of course it was a pig because a pig has a very similar heart to a human being. According to the documentarian, this was just a trial run. If Geller could successfully stop the pig's heart, then maybe he could kill the Soviet premier. After the parapsychology research at the Stanford Research Institute was declassified, the government abruptly ended their paranormal research and concluded that it was never useful in any intelligence operation. But Uri suggests that, that the programs maybe never went away. Maybe the project just went deep black. And believe it or not, remote viewing is still around. Uh, no doubt that NSA, National Security Agency, CIA, FBI, MI5, MI6, Mossad, Germans, French, Italians, Japanese, Chinese are using people who are intuitive and they can send their mind through space and time and bring back information. I think one of the things that people might say is that Uri Geller is a fraud. What do you have to say about that? Um, listen, controversy dogged me all my life. From the first times in school here in Tel Aviv when I was eight, nine, ten, to uh, my first performances in Israel. You know, I laughed today and I laughed then. I, I used to have a tape measure in my pocket. And whenever there was an article about me, I never read them, I measured them. Because Xavier, you know how much it costs for uh, Mercedes-Benz to have a full page in the New York Times or the New Yorker or the LA Times. Um, they are, it's 50, 60, 80,000 dollars for a page, maybe today it's more. So it didn't matter what they said, as long as they spelled my name correctly. After Uri completed his research with the government, he became a bit of a star. If you grew up in the 70s and 80s, you probably remember watching Uri Geller on TV. But there was one television appearance that made him infamous. Uri was invited to go on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. I'm going to play a clip from that episode, but I'm going to have the amazing Randy tell you about it. James Randy is a magician who has dedicated his entire life to trolling Uri Geller. Randy says that Geller is nothing more than a charlatan and a fraud who uses simple magic tricks to perform his paranormal abilities. Here's how Randy recalls Uri Geller's appearance on The Tonight Show. And then, of course, there was Mr. Geller's appearance on The Tonight Show. I got a call after they booked him to appear. Would you welcome, please, Uri Geller. The curtains open, and Johnny Carson shakes Uri Geller's hand. Johnny had been a magician himself and was skeptical. 
I was asked to help prevent any trickery. Nice to see you. Thanks. We, um... We this, have only met. This scares me. This, this scares you? Well, this is just, we just got some things together here. And I told I them said, to provide their own props and not to let Geller or his people anywhere uh, near them. Also. Uri Geller is visibly surprised to see a tray of tin cans sitting right in front of him. And I'd like you to take your own pace when you feel like you want to try anything. Right. Do you want to try that particular experiment first? When I'll feel free. When okay? you can? Sure. Johnny Carson asks Uri Geller to pick out the one tin that has water in it. We'll start eliminating the ones that do not have the water. All right, without touching them. He is really suspicious now. <laughs> I'm having a hard time with you. Okay, I don't mean to be, Uri. I really no, don't. Just, just keep looking. Okay, let me rest a little, all right? All right. Me... Uri says that he needs more time. You know, I'm surprised because before this program, your producer came and he read me at least 40 questions you're going to ask me. Well, I can ask you all kinds of questions if you'd like, if you'd like me to ask you well, questions. To, I have to have time. And, uh, um... Carson was not going to let him get away with it that easy. So they cut to commercial break. And when they returned... Jack, we are back. Your Uri was telling me you, you, you don't feel, what, strong tonight? I don't Is feel that... strong. It's not... All tonight, right now, I'm feel I'm feeling being pressed, and then I can't. Well, I'm not trying to press you. I really not. Uh, you no, know, you're only I'm, telling me, well, will you try that or that? Well, I thought that was the idea of. Uh, <laughs> of uh, no, I'm not. No, I'm not trying to put you down. Uri Geller waves his hand over the tin canisters. Remember, this is the same experiment that he was able to do at the Stanford Research Institute over and over again. He got so good at it that he would just simply walk into the room and pick the right can with water on his first try. Yet, here he is, sitting next to Johnny Carson, and he's visibly shaken. He refuses to finish the experiment. But this is really not a controlled condition. But again, it's quite difficult for me, and uh, I won't go on something that uh, I don't feel strong for. All right. This appearance in front of millions of people watching was a bust. This should have been the end of Uri Geller. So, so what happened? I mean, was that a setup? No, I walked into a trap. Um, they, they had an arrangement with Randy. And the minute I walked into the trap, I felt it. Remember, I'm sensitive. I mean, I'm intuitive. I have remote viewing. And the minute I sat on that chair, I knew there is, this is a trap. You know, I didn't know that Johnny Carson was an amateur magician or, uh, and um, I think that's what turned me off. Anyhow, I thought that, again, I was destroyed. I went back to my hotel, packed up, uh, ready to fly back the next morning. Morning. And the next morning, the operator wakes me up and she says, Mr. Geller, I've got a Merv Griffin on the line for you. And, and my first words were to her was, come on, you mean the Merv Griffin? And she said, yeah, that's what he, he says. That's him. <laughs> it's him. So it was him. And he says, Merv says to me, uh, Uri Geller, I've seen you on Johnny Carson. I want you on my show this week. It turns out that James Randi's attempt to take down Uri Geller in front of the Tonight Show audience backfired. Uri Geller was more popular than ever. 
That didn't stop James Randi from exposing Uri Geller at every step of the way. Randi wrote a book titled The Truth About Uri Geller. He too went on many television shows demonstrating exactly how Uri bends the spoons. Hold the tip of the spoon very, very gently. Okay. What I'm doing is I'm trying to melt the metal down. Yes, you see, I feel it. It's yes, going. It's getting loose. Yeah. And there's no force at all in my hands. Yes, look what's like happening. This. There's no force at all. Look, the whole, you see, it's becoming plastic. The whole thing's plastic. ready to fall off. <laughs> the media, even some scientists, were taking the Geller phenomena seriously. So I decided to show, for starters, that I could at least duplicate these effects using trickery. Now, a key can be displayed in such a way that it looks like it's bending. For example, just by stroking it, you'd swear that it's bending right up before your eyes. But to do this, the key has to be bent in advance. I could have taken it and dropped it below the level of the table and pressed the tip on the chair I'm sitting on, which is exactly what I just did. Did I fool you? I asked Uri Geller what he thinks about James Randi. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. he probably was, you know, this is my opinion, but he was obsessed with Uri Geller. I have love letters from him, which I keep, uh, and probably I will display when he parts and goes over to the other side, or if I go before him, who knows? Um, I've got letters that are incredible. Uh, you know, the way he tried to schmooze me, uh, and then, then it became more negative um, but God bless him I tried uh, maybe on one or two occasions to make up with him I, I remember when David Blaine buried himself in New York uh, I, I was there and uh, I saw Randy and I thought wow this is a great opportunity to go and shake his hands and tell him you know let's put everything behind us so I woke up to him. Yeah, he had a long cape on and I, I stretched my hand and I said hi Randy this is Uri let's shake hands and he looked at me and I said here here's my hand my brother-in-law was behind me filming all this and I said to him Randy why aren't you shaking my hand and he kind of looked up um, and he said because I hate your guts hmm. and uh, there's nothing more I want, would like to add to this all I can say is I never hated the man. I don't hate anyone. But uh, that's how it is, you know? I tried to get James Randi on the phone, but his assistant told me that he's not in the greatest health. I mean, the guy is 90 years old. But he told me to get in contact with James Randi's protege, a mentalist named Steve Shaw, whose stage name is Banishek. Banishek told me that as a child, he would listen to Uri Geller on the radio. I remember listening to the radio, Springbok radio. They didn't have television there yet or a television station. And Uri was on the radio and he was bending objects in people's homes. He said, if you can get an object and you bring it to the radio, you could get it to bend yourself. So I walked off, looked around the house and I found my mom's sewing uh, kit that she had left behind. I picked up a little needle, I brought it to the radio and I concentrated on it. And I believed that I could actually get that pin to bend. I believed it bent on a micro level. You absolutely believed that you had powers when you were a kid, right? Like you were speaking in tongue and all that. 
Yeah, you know, I, it was really, I think, more so when I read Randy's book. It put a lot of things in perspective for me. I had never, ever thought about the fact that this stuff might not be real. And the truth, as Randy put it, was that, that Gallo was nothing more than a magician posing as a psychic. And as I read that book, I became quite upset. So I started creating my own methods as a result of one or two little things that were based in Randy's book. And I took it to the next level, uh, to the point where when I was in high school, the kids were stealing all the silverware from the cafeteria and bringing it to me to bend. And I got in major, major trouble for that. Um, and they went to plastic wear until I, I, I graduated. So and. Tell me if I'm exaggerating, but like, is it too much to say that uh, at the time when you were listening to those radio shows, I mean, people took Uri Geller seriously, right? I mean, it's- Yeah, you've got to imagine back in those days, we're talking about the 1970s and the 1980s, it was a very different culture. You had the Soviet Union that was doing their research, um, and they were putting out a lot of videos of, of their psychics. And the U.S. government was getting in on the act because we had the Cold War going on. And we certainly wouldn't want their people being able to read our government's minds. Uh, we'd want to be able to read their minds. And so it was all taken very seriously. So let's talk about the ethics of magic, because there seems to be this line that magicians and mentalists and illusionists, that they won't cross. And that's telling people that it's actually supernatural, right? Like, I think most magicians and illusionists would say that that this is not uh, a supernatural power. This is a trick. Yeah. It's an interesting dilemma, isn't it? Because magicians want people to be fooled by what they do. They want them to have sort of this mystical experience. So saying it's magic, which kind of ties into what we might think of as real magic, and yet at the same time, there's sort of this contractual agreement with the audience that, hey, I'm going to fool you. It is going to be a trick. And if it's a really good trick, it will look like it's real. I'm going to do something, and it's going to look to you like I can read your mind. You're going to believe that I am actually reading your mind, but I am telling you I am not reading your mind. So I have a responsibility to my audiences to remind them this is just entertainment. I am not really a psychic. I think I owe that to my audiences. I know there's going to be a huge group of people that will come. They're going to believe no matter what I say. They're going to sit there and they're going to say, he's just saying he's a, he's a fake, he's a fraud, but he's really psychic. Would you say that Uri Geller is claiming to have supernatural powers? He certainly has claimed many times to have supernatural powers in the past. Um, I remember I worked on a TV show called Phenomenon with him. And I said to Geller at that time, I said, Uri, I said, if you're going to claim to have supernatural powers, you know I cannot work with you, right? And he said, no, 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 I don't do that anymore. I don't do that anymore. And then five minutes later, he, he turned to me and he said, um, but you know that I found oil, right? And I said, Uri? He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I know, I know, I know. I was at a convention. And Uri was on stage, and uh, myself and two other kids, one kid from Japan who bent metal and another kid that I was working with, Mike Edward. Then we proceeded to go to the front of the stage and sat down right up front watching Uri. And I saw Uri doing things, and I was like, I can't believe that the rest of this audience can't see exactly what he's doing. He's turning sideways and sneaking a look at the board. He's already bent that spoon and he's holding it in the, the kids' hands. Why can't they see this? And then I realized that the entire audience was there wanted to believe. They were a group of believers, and it didn't matter what he did or how he did it. They were going to believe no matter what. And that is like the root of the concept of my show, too, is that like you only fall for 
the con if you believe, right? Yes and no, right? I, I think you don't only fall for the con if you believe, because you could come in not believing, but certain things can be put in place to convince you and then you believe. It's sometimes the con man's job to prey upon your, your greed or what you would like to have to be real and then convince you that it's real. Do you think that there's any harm in what Geller was doing? I mean, did it did it hurt anybody? I do think it did. Uh, Geller would probably tell you no, and other people would tell you no. They just say he was doing uh, people, even people, some people that don't believe in him would say he was just doing magic. What does that hurt? I think it does hurt. I, I it, it hurts long term because you're talking about science, right? You're not talking about entertainment. You're talking about science. You're talking about people starting to believe in these things and starting to go in other directions and spending an awful lot of money studying something that's just quackery, that's just nonsense. Geller is truly a mystery. He says he's not a magician, and he's backed away from claims that he has supernatural powers. You know that throughout my, what, 50 years, um, I'm hugely controversial. There are those who try to debunk me, those who simply could not accept that this is real. Uh, they are magicians who attacked me, um, but all these attacks uh, and the, the controversy around me was an amazing tool for my um, for my publicity. I, you know, and, and today when, for instance, magicians ask me, come on, Uri, this must be a trick. I say no, absolutely no, because it really happened to me when I was five. Now, whether it's a talent, a skill or psychic power, I love leaving that a mystery. Is he a secret spy or a trickster? I'll leave that up to you. But think for a moment, what if he were a secret spy just hiding in plain sight? And the spoon bending tricks were all just a front. So if you're right and everything has gone dark or deep black, could it be possible that maybe you're still assisting other governments or maybe the US government still? Uh, absolutely no comment. I, I won't deny, I won't agree, I won't, no comment. What I can tell you is my show business life um, is still booming. Yeah, you see, Xavier, the controversy, the, 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 the Randys and the Psychops and all those people who tried to debunk me for almost 50 years were basically acting for me. And what I mean by that, one, they gave me free publicity. And, you know, going back 100 years, Oscar Wilde said that there's only one worse thing in life than being talked about. And that's not being talked about. So the, the, these debunkers were fueling uh, the wheel of publicity around me, which was amazing. It was a, a gift on a silver platter. I have to send the skeptics 
thousand bouquets of flowers. No, I'll change that. A million bouquets of flowers. Because they kept the Uri Geller mystique, the, the Uri Geller mystery alive and well. Today, Uri Geller and his wife, Hannah, are living in Israel. He's turned a thousand-year-old building into the Uri Geller Museum. One of, my, one of the things that I will have in the museum is my Cadillac, which is a 1976 Fleetwood Brome. So I riveted 2,000 spoons to the body of, this, of the car, spoons that were given to me by John Lennon, Michael Jackson, Elton John, Salvador Dali. Uh, it has 2,000 famous spoons on. The George Clooney played me, Robert De Niro played me. There are The Matrix, the spoon bending, Keanu Reeves. There are dozens of singers that sing about spoon bending. Wow, how did I do it? That will stay a mystery. It was time to end our conversation. But before we hung up, I asked Uri if he could uh, try to guess what I was seeing. I wanted to ask, is it possible if we do a remote viewing now during this interview? No, no, I, I, don't, want, I don't want to fail. I think it was a good interview. Yes. Um, maybe another time, Xavier. But that wasn't the end of my conversation with Uri Geller. There was something else that he wanted to tell me. Just uh, let, let's let, let, let's uh, close your recorder. I'd, I'd like to talk to you personally. Oh, absolutely. All right. Um, After I okay. turned off my recorder, Uri told me a few things about my future that I couldn't stop thinking about for days. He asked for it to be off the record, so I'll honor that. But the more I thought about it, nothing he said was super specific. He just told me what I wanted to hear. And part of me really wants to believe. Next time on Pretend, we're going to continue my deep dive looking into psychic spies. If this episode made you go, hmm, I don't know, maybe psychics like Yuri Geller are real, then this next episode is going to make you think again. I'm going to ask these two gentlemen a very simple, direct question. Can you tell us how do you do it? Hold on. Be quite honest. We cheat. You're going to meet two high school kids who posed as psychics in a scientific study. When we went to the Mac Lab, we didn't know what we were going to be tested on. They were constantly coming up with new tests that we literally on the spot had to figure out how we could beat it, how we could do it in such a way not to get caught and to make it look psychic. These have apparently included being able to move small, solid objects across a tabletop, influencing a variety of metal objects such as keys and silverware and metal bars and metal rods. I don't believe they're tricking us. They fooled the researchers for more than two years using just simple tricks. 
That's next time on Pretend. I really want to thank my friend TJ Cunihan for helping me produce this one. He broke away from his family vacation to hop on the phone with me and Geller. Also, if you want to learn more about Uri Geller, you need to watch the documentary The Secret Life of Uri Geller. It's incredibly fascinating. I was able to watch it off of Uri Geller's website, urigeller.com. I'll put a link in the show notes. And you may have seen Uri Geller recently in the news. His latest thing is that he claims that he's going to stop Brexit using just telepathy. Geller, who is also a British citizen, urged Prime Minister Theresa May to block Britain from leaving the European Union. Since then, Theresa May has resigned, and no one knows what the heck is going to happen. Anyway, if you're enjoying the show, the best thing you could do, I mean, people ask me all the time, they're like, Javier, I'd like to support the show monetarily, but I can't. How else can I support the show? Well, it's really easy. Just go to iTunes and leave a review. You have no idea how much that helps. Plus, it'll counteract all those negative reviews (laughs) that for some reason keep popping up. So if you like the show, give those negative reviews a piece of your mind. Go to iTunes and rate the show. I would really appreciate it. And also, it just helps people discover the show. And remember, if you're in Chicago, come see me at the True Crime Podcast Festival. Go to truecrimefestival.com. And get your tickets. I'd love to meet you guys. All right, everyone. Talk to you next time. From the brilliant creative minds that brought you Keep Drinking, It'll Get Better, and the Real Housewives of Hillcrest Nursing Home, comes the podcast that people are raving about. Hi, this is Edward October for OctoberPodVHS.com, here to tell you what people are saying about our true crime podcast. A thread store in Arizona says, too much dribble and slang. These... Ladies obviously enjoy their own humor and sound high. Hey, at least they called you ladies. Benny from Idaho says, Your topics are so appealing, but a three-person pod is difficult enough to follow without banter. Um, our true crime podcast only has two people? Wait, 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 wait. Where's the other 100 five-star reviews? Can somebody give me the five-star reviews? Okay, here we go. Much better. Luscious Lee says, stand up, five stars. You girls are funny AF. I especially love the me and Mrs. Jones rendition you sneak into the recording. Cherry G 107 says, I struggle finding a new podcast, and so far, I've been hooked to you guys' podcasts. Keep up the good work. Thumbs up, thumbs up, smiley face. Our true crime podcast, two girls, one story, and lots of bad renditions of songs you love. Available on your favorite podcatcher. Go binge it today. Creative Power.